Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today's guest is Richard Turner, who is the ultimate entrepreneur. He is a specialist in market disruption, having founded four successful companies in Australia across four completely different industries. Today, Richard is fiercely passionate about helping people successfully start and scale companies, setting out the essential rules to give first-time entrepreneurs the best chance of success. He has multiple awards, including EY's South Australian Entrepreneur of the Year, and at one stage had the fourth growing company in Australia. He's also the entrepreneur in residence from the University of South Australia. His most recent venture, Zen Energy, has a mission to become Australia's largest clean energy retailer. He has a huge passion for this area and realizes the potential for the Australian economy if we grasp the renewable opportunity. In our chat, it is amazing to see how Richard firstly discovered a gap in the market and then set off to capitalize on them. One memorable story was when he was helping his son to build a cubby house, but couldn't find the right solar light. You will hear how this ultimately led to the creation of Zen Energy. We also discuss his recently published book, The Essential Entrepreneur, where he explains how to start, scale, and ultimately sell a business. It is the book he wished he had at the start of his career. If you are an entrepreneur or wanting to become one, Richard shares lots of invaluable advice. If you are an entrepreneur in a company, you'll also find many helpful tips here as well. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Richard Turner to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Richard. Yeah, thank you, Graham. Nice to be here. Richard, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Look, I think care in the workplace covers two different areas. I would say there's the business caring for its people and its stakeholders, you know, the, the um, when I say stakeholders, suppliers, um, customers, bankers, every, everyone who deals with the business, but particularly the people who work within the business, so caring for its people. But I think the second side of that is the business caring for the broader community um, and the planet as such these days. So there's responsibility for the environment, for for many things out there in the community that the the business needs to care about these days. The two sides. Yeah, and, and I see that uh, you've had quite a um, recent career in renewables and mm. alternative ways to get energy. And South Australia has really taken quite a, a lead in that area. How did you come to choose that area to, to focus yeah. on? I know you've previous areas, but why, why are you passionate about this area now? When I was at school, I was quite passionate and loved maths and physics, which is a bit strange for most people, but um, uh, I enjoyed technology. And I guess back in the early 2000s, this is before there was any solar battery companies or renewable companies, we really got the chance to pioneer the renewable industry as such in South Australia, because 
it was the first state to introduce a feed-in tariff and uh, and other incentives for renewables early uh, under the premiership of Mike Rand back in uh, the early 2000s. Um, and timing's everything when you're going into business. And um, so we were starting to read about climate change in the newspapers and um, you know, John Howard, Prime Minister at the time, was starting to talk about the first incentives for reducing um, you know, carbon output and energy consumption in the home. And I guess that combined with a interesting night I had with the kids in the cubby house at the back of the yard um, when you know, I had, had no intention of starting an energy company and particularly my background, really, I grew up in the food industry and um, my father's company and, and my, my own first company in food distribution. So really had no background in energy at all. But I was playing with the kids one night at home in the cubby house at the back of the yard and there was no light and it was getting dark and they wanted a, a little light and a little radio or a TV in the cubby house. And I thought, well, we've got no power at the back of the yard. What am I going to do here? So we either run power to the back of the yard, which was a long way, or I put like a battery or something in the cubby house. And um, so I said to the kids the next day, jump in the car, we'll go to the hobby shop, we'll see what we can find. And, um, and you know, there was no solar systems, no kits, nothing back then. So um, I really got in there. Talking to the chap who was helping me, he actually wrote Ohm's Law on the whiteboard, um, which was watts equals volts times amps. And we had to find all these bits and pieces. And I'm going in there thinking, oh, I'm just going to walk out with a battery of some sort or whatever. Anyway, saw a little solar panel, not the big solar panel which you see these days because they didn't exist back then. It was a little sort of 12-inch by 12-inch solar panel. And um, and I thought, oh, okay, maybe, maybe could I charge a battery with that? You know, and uh, and I sort of walked out pairing up all these bits and pieces, a battery with the solar panel and and an inverter and some wiring and cable and switch gear, and came home and put this little twelve volt power system together. So you know, technically an off grid you know, standalone power system for the cubby house, and it worked, and the kids loved it. And uh, so I, I sort of stood back and put my business hat on and thought, well, there's there's no technical barrier here to actually powering a house with with this gear. And um, so I started exploring, and my father-in-law was a senior electrician, so I, I sort of pulled him in and, and started researching, you know, potential suppliers and people who could manufacture this gear around the world and um, found a company called SMA in Germany that, had, that produced big inverters for the railway yards and had just started producing very small inverters potentially for the home. And inverters are what converts DC energy that comes from the sun into AC energy. And then um, I found a company in China called ET Solar that had just started, had one production line, manual production line, building these, uh, I think, 120 watt at the time, solar panels. So I started talking to both these companies about, and interesting, trying to get the Germans and the Chinese to work together back then. That was a challenge in itself. But um uh, getting them to work together and integrate all this componentry so it all matched and became a it or a system for the home and then the challenge was how how do i take this to market because no one understood solar energy back then it was really how do you make energy from the sun it was really in the realms of weird science for most people so i thought well, like unlike today when people do understand the componentry back then they didn't so i thought well i, I need to take this to market under a brand that people could relate to and understand. And, and branding is really critical in business. You've got to get the right brand, brand that relates and means something to people. And, and Zen Energy 
for me was an acronym at the time for zero energy, balancing generation and demand. So energy independence. And, uh, but it also carried those really nice Eastern connotations, wisdom, enlightenment, a new way of life, all the things you wanted from a renewable energy brand. So the brand has been very good over a long period of time. We took it to market in a very simple format under the Zen home energy system with the proposal being that you know you could choose one of four systems that powered from a quarter of the average house to all of the average house. Um, so it was one system, what size do you want? And it was a very simple proposition. And the company just took off, right product, right time, um, right incentives, and it literally went crazy. And uh, we th- that was the really the founding of the renewable energy sector in Australia. Wow, what a, what a what a fantastic story! And it's one thing to discover something trying to help your kids in their cubby house. It's another thing to then decide to launch a business. And obviously, there's a mindset there that gave you the confidence to do that. In our um, preamble, you talked about the importance of working in your parents' business, your father's business. Can you just mm. get a little, little bit of background? behind that and how that sets you up for a life of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, look, I I think there were some really important lessons there I learned at a young age. So uh, a a bit of a warning for vegetarians, but it was a wholesale meat processing and distribution business. Um, And my father would send, and I had two older brothers, or have two older brothers, sent us in there at a very young age, um, you know, primary school age, probably 10 years old, we'd go in there and uh, you know, no favours for the children of the owner. So he made that very clear to everyone. And, um, and so we got probably overworked and underpaid, but um, we cleaned the walls, we washed the drains, I was packing the offal, I was on the production line, I was did everything that you could do, all the, all the dirty, rotten jobs. But working in an environment like that, um, as you could imagine, the mix of cultures that worked in a in a meat processing place was you know, a, a really representative cross section of Australia. So um, you had and learning from a young age how to have conversations with everyone from all these varied backgrounds and having very positive conversations and uh, understanding their families, their backgrounds, what made them happy, and um, you know, it was a great lesson in life from a very young age, as well as understanding the value of hard work and the value of money. All those things combined, I think, was a great foundation for my life, I guess, as an entrepreneur and, and starting and growing companies. But uh, yeah, I could, couldn't have got a better, you know, at the time, I thought this is hell <laughs> as a young kid. But um, but reflecting on it now, you think, well, that was that was probably a fantastic upbringing. Yeah. And what did you learn about leadership from your father? Look, he he was an amazing man. He was very much the self-made entrepreneur. He grew up in the country, very poor family, moved to Adelaide when he was about 14, um, I think, or 12 or 14, he left school when he was about 14, I think, went and worked at the abattoirs, drafting cattle around, got to then or got a job at a butcher shop, learnt about trading red meat, and then Eventually, uh, I'm not sure how or why, but had the confidence to start a small red meat business, trading business, and the company just grew and grew from there. And that that company now um, has gone on 
to become um, what's known now as Thomas Foods. It's changed ownership and leadership, but it's now one of the biggest companies of its type in Australia. It's a multi-billion dollar company. So to see that grow from literally the dining room table in the early days to what it's become now was a remarkable uh, progression to see. And uh, it was made very clear to me. I, I was the youngest, but the first of the three children to go to get the chance to go to university. So it was at a time in the early eighties when computerization of businesses was just starting to happen, and um, we had just gone from the old. I don't know whether you remember these, Graham, but an, an old Wang computer that was doing the accounts that had the five-inch floppy floppy disk, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'd just progressed to buying this big. Hewlett Packard 3000 computer system, like an almost like a small mainframe that filled up a whole room. And, and um, you know, we had consultants setting up and running it, but it was made very clear to me they want me to go through this business course at university, learn how to operate this machine and uh, and become their first systems manager and start um, systemizing, uh, automating all these manual procedures. So my first taste, I guess, of of innovation and entrepreneurship was really in those days of when I came out of university and got to learn about this machine. And I was one of the first cohorts to go through and learn programming. You know, it was on basic those days, but going from punch cards to actually using a keyboard and coding. So it was a it was an interesting time to come in and do that. But the livestock trading system, which was a very manual process for that company, uh, cattle buyers would go around the country buying tens of thousands of head of cattle that we had to track live weights, processed weights, um, yields, uh, all sorts of data, uh, who bought these cattle breeds and where they were from. Um, it was a hugely manual process and took a long time to get insights from any data in any sort of short period of time. So one of the first things I wanted to do was automate that process. And that created or gave us the environment where we could get insights from that data very quickly. And it really changed the industry. And that was my my first taste of innovation and entrepreneurship. But I just caught the bug from that, I think, and just loved the idea of changing companies and changing industries. And that sort of, I guess, set myself up for what I did later in life and these other different companies. And uh, you have become a serial entrepreneur. You've had a number of uh, startups. Can you just give our listeners a bit of an overview of some of those startups and what industries they were in? So after the the meat company, which was my father's business, um, my brother Greg and I set up a company called Regency Food Services, which I guess was the very early version of what is now Bidvest or Bidfood in Australia. So uh, it was a food distribution business. Um, We distributed uh, food to all the major hotels, restaurants, takeaways, um, caterers, et cetera. And we did a lot of innovations in that industry um, from setting up the first 24-hour food distribution warehouse in Australia, understanding our customers were hospitality. They worked almost opposite hours of the clock to what traditional warehouses worked. So we mm. went through all the enterprise bargaining process. We changed the way our uh business operated. Um, we had telesales people that would stay on for late shifts and be able to talk to chefs when they finished their their night shift or their dinner trade and, and create relationships through our quality management system. We were able to verify orders. As you can imagine, chefs are, can be grumpy people at the best of times. So when they order their food, it's like, you know what I want, you know, slam the phone down on the answering machine. Of course, you'd get those orders wrong. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, it'd be a problem the next day. You have to send expensive couriers all over the place fixing things up. So to have that ability to work with the chefs in their time zone um, 
was an enormous benefit. So that was one of the first things we did. We had a lot of a lot of changes in that in that business, but uh, we were the first total food service company where we were like Coles and Woolworths, but on wheels and in catering quantities. Really, were the first company with four temperature zones to be able to supply everything to our customers. So the convenience of doing that was a huge step forward in the industry. It really changed the industry because back then, if you were a restaurant or a hotel, um, you know you had suppliers for almost everything, frozen foods and groceries and and everything. So changing the way the industry operated in that way. Um, Another really important thing in business and about caring about your business and your people as well is asking yourself, what business am I in? And remaining true to your purpose. Because quite often in a complex business, there are multiple businesses within a business. So if you looked at that food distribution business, there was probably four businesses within that business. Um, And some things you're very good at and you add value to. Other things are a distraction and just take up time and you're not an expert in and you need to consider is that part of the core business or not and do we need to outsource that? So with that business, it was a purchasing business. We were very good at purchasing and having relationships with our suppliers. We were very good at running a complex multi-temperature warehouse and and picking system. Um, We're very good at sales um, and that process and engaging our customers and converting and marketing. But the part of the business that we felt was always out of control was our delivery vehicles. Like we had a fleet of probably 15 very expensive vehicles, multi-temperature trucks that were you know $150,000 each, Ooh. drivers. And, of course, the drivers often were sick. The trucks would break down. Um, there seemed to be a physical limit to how many deliveries the drivers could do in a day. And it just was always a distraction for us and would take us away from the areas of the business that we knew we ran well and we knew we added value to. Mm. So we came up with the concept one day of what if we outsourced this or even sold the trucks to our drivers? How would they accept that? And we we looked at a way of um, having a conversation with the drivers about if we paid you a percentage of the stock that you took out on the vehicles that equated to what you earn now, plus uh, gave you the money for insurance and maintenance uh, would you be interested in taking on the ownership of these trucks? And of course, yeah, most people were, you know, concerned or worried or wondering why we were doing this. But in, you've only got to get the one or two that think that know they could do double the deliveries in the day if they were being paid for it, and think it through and take it on and become the pilots or their examples. And so suddenly, we we did contracts with a couple of the drivers. They virtually turned into supermen overnight. They were doing 50 deliveries a day instead of 20. Um, they were earning a fortune. They were doing really well. Their customers became, or our customers became their customers. They were rotating stock in their freezers and chillers of the customers. They were over-servicing them. They were selling, upselling. And it became a remarkable innovation, for the lack of a better word, for the business. Mm-hmm. And um, so it took it took away what was a distraction for us and turned it into a hugely positive thing for the company. And so all the com- all the drivers over time took on their rounds and they enjoyed it. They got the satisfaction. They got the reward from it. And it virtually doubled the productivity of the company in a very short time. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing we we also developed. It was at a time in the 90s where hospitality staff was a shortage, very much like it is now. And um, we had managers of hotels and restaurants saying to our sales staff when they were in there selling food, 
you know, can you have a conversation with the chef down the road? I would like him to work for me or go and try and poach the, you know, food and beverage manager or the, or the waiting staff. And, and so our sales staff are coming off the road saying, hey, I'm being asked to try and poach staff for my customers. And uh, we thought, oh, maybe there's a market for a hospitality staffing agency. So I had a young girl working for me at the time, Christy, her name was, that was helping us recruit our own staff. I knew she had a background in hospitality. And I said, well, you know, I think there might be a market here to set up a hospitality staffing agency. What do you think? Do you think the timing's right? You know, and and potentially, would you like to run it for me? Because I have no idea how to run a staffing agency. And she took a couple of days and came back and she said, yes, I think the timing's perfect. And and, uh, yes, I'd love to do that. So we set up Regency Staffing as a, you know, a lateral sort of business to Regency Food Services. And, more as a service to our customers to give them a flexible workforce. So we employed all these chefs and food and beverage staff, and we would hire them out to these companies or help them with permanent recruitment and get paid for it. And we, I think we turned over a couple of million dollars in our first year of just staff placements. <laughs> um, what we didn't realize, though, when we started off on this, was that the chefs are the people who order the food. So if you own the chefs, you sort of own the food supply. So we had about 300 chefs out there, including 10 chefs at Qantas and all over the place. Um, that started, you know, showing their loyalty to what we had done for them and buying from us and the company just took off again. So we had all these innovations within that business that sort of positioned it exceptionally well in the market. People could see what was going on. And when Bidvest, which was a South African company that had just rationalised the food service market in the UK and bought the biggest distributors in the UK, when they came to Australia in, I think, 99 it was, or 2000, um, they were looking for a model in Australia that reflected their operation overseas, but also they knew would work in Australia. And they saw our company. We just won the Australian Food Service Distributor of the Year for the second time in a row. And they came and approached us and made it no secret that they wanted to buy our company and buy that business model. And over a year, they came back to us about five times with a higher offer each time and eventually eventually bought the business. It was a, it was a great exit for us. But I think most importantly, and I think reflecting the care for your staff and having the right people within your organisation, the young, or say girl at the time, um, I employed as my receptionist when she was 20, is now the CEO of what is now a multi-billion dollar business in Australia. <laughs> um, and uh, she, is, she is a gun, amazing, you know, and, and grew up within, she went from receptionist to working as a purchasing clerk to purchasing manager and just grew through the business and um uh yeah remarkable story of of you know hiring the right people don't all but don't just hire someone who's going to be a receptionist always within a company i would suggest to hire people that can go multiple levels within the company because that's part of having the people who have a passion to change the sector it aligns with their personal mission they grow within the company and they're going to perform at their, their best because it's what they want to do. It's not just a job and it's not just income. And um, in that, and that's just a, a classic example of someone who is now running and getting paid an absolute fortune for running a multi-billion dollar business in Australia. When you think back to your first interview with her, can you think of a moment which let you know that he was someone who could go a long way? Oh, just just her natural enthusiasm and the way she presented and uh, it, was, it was her interest in the business. And, and I think 
for people going in and working in a business, it's understanding the business needs as well as your own personal needs. And the mm-hmm. businesses have to make money and they have to, you know, I would say to all my staff, you're all an entrepreneur in my business. Your job's to find a better way of doing your job and and taking your, you know, this business mission, which is hopefully aligned with their personal mission, on a journey of continual improvement and innovation, reinvention, and um, and let's make a difference to the world. And if we can get people on that journey with the company early and hiring people that have that vision and alignment with the business, uh, you will have, or should have, not all the time, but um, in most cases, you will have tremendous success with those people. It's really interesting that you tell that story about uh, about that woman because uh, in one of the episodes we published just before Christmas, there was a lady called Suzanne Steele, and she had a similar journey that, uh, you know, she was hired by an entrepreneur, a 60-year-old entrepreneur in the UK, mm. and, you know, just took off and um, just went for it. And a very similar story to what you describe. And she is now the CEO of Adobe in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. It yes, is. It is. Yeah. It's. It's uh, for our listeners. I really recommend listening to her story as well because um, it's. It's seriously hard to believe. <laughs> and, and entrepreneurs love love seeing a reflection of themselves in people. And and I, um, you know, we had a brief chat before the interview, and I said, you know, there's there are two types of CEOs out there. There are the CEOs who are the founders, the entrepreneurs who go into business with everything on the line. And you know the business success is is critical to them. So they are naturally looking for people who want to go on that journey, who are passionate about the mission, the vision, the values, and just getting those three things right. And you know is so important before you bring these people into the organisation, so they know what this business is all about and aligned with it, and come into it, and uh, and they will work from it. But there's also the CEOs who are who are and I won't say just employees, but are employees. You know, if they lose their job or they get moved on, they don't lose everything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there'll be differences. People like that are probably looking more with a management lens or a management view as to entrepreneurs who are really looking at a reflection of themselves and people and their passion and their their desire to change businesses, to innovate and as I said, I would always say to them, you're all entrepreneurs in my business. We need to change this industry or change this sector. And you're on this journey with me and very much part of the decision-making, the mission, the vision, the values, the business planning, everything. And, and I think that really impacts on people. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. The first resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you will need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. Just from the stories you've told so far, Richard, we can see how you are a a serial entrepreneur and you've just brought out a new book called The Essential Entrepreneur. Can you tell us why you thought it was necessary to write that book and what were the main lessons you wanted to share in that book? 
Oh, there's so many lessons in that book. Um, there's 18 chapters in there, but everything. I wrote the book because I, I wish as a young lad someone had given me this book to read and I would have learnt so much from it. But reflecting on 40 years of being in business, back to all the things I've learnt and in starting or being a part of the starting and growing of three businesses now that are, that are virtually billion-dollar businesses, uh, it's unique for anyone to see one billion-dollar business, let alone three. Um, and being able to, to develop a platform that can grow into that size organisation, there are fundamentals that need to be in place from the very early days to get that right, which is really what I've done with these chapters in the book. So it covers everything from the initial validation of a business model, making sure there's a customer out there that's willing to pay the price for this product or service that you're thinking of offering, developing the startup business plan. And I remember spending hours and hours and hours with my accountant sitting down with him working through, you know, how many of these things do I have to sell to make a profit? And um, you know, all the variations of that model. Um, is it going to be a product or a service company? Because they're very different things and, and worth different values at the end of the day when you sell a business. A product company can be worth five to 10 times its bottom line profit. A service company, because it's generally reflect it's generally only you, it's it's you or or people working for you, but you're only making money when you're actually working. Um, so a service company is generally only worth one maybe if you're lucky, two times its earnings. So if you can productize a service, and I show some great examples of how you can do that within the book, you can change the value of your company tremendously. Timing, talking about timing, entering a market like Zen Energy, the energy market, as I said earlier, you know, the timing was, was right with Regency Food Services. The timing was right in entering and creating a total food service company and making these innovations within the market. Um, you know, what my father did with, with um uh, his business, which was originally Holbrook Meat Company, became Turner and Row Pastoral, and then became Thomas Foods. But again, timing of developing that business was was right. Um, having the passion, the culture, and the values, um, the brand position, and the marketing. Um, how to how to you know sales and marketing. People talk about sales and marketing as being the same thing often, where they're not. They're very different things. Marketing is is about how you understanding who is your customer. What, who are they? Um, what age? What gender? Where are they? How do you communicate with them? Um, what things are going to motivate them to inquire within your your business and and um, you know, creating that um, that desire to inquire? And then the sales is how you then engage with them once they make that inquiry through your sales channels and convert that right through the delivery and after sales service. Very two diff very different things how to source suppliers and, and how to manufacture product. It goes through all these things to defining new markets. If you're going to change a market um, uh, or innovate dramatically, uh, you know, it's no point setting up a business just to compete with people who are already doing something in the same way. They've already got the customers and the suppliers and the finance and everything set up a big advantage. Um, so you need to change the way the industry works. But if you're going to change the way the industry works, give it a new name reposition it, become the leader. Uh, and I often say half my media spend was always on PR in positioning myself or my company as the leader of that sector that I've now given a new name. So when we pioneered the renewable energy sector in Australia, we created this term called home energy that now is very broadly bandied around. But we actually coined that term and uh, even owned the words Zen home energy system or Zen energy. Um 
so we were able to shut down people all the time that tried to start competing or copying companies. Um, getting investment ready, trademarks and patents, all, all these things. You know, there, there's, as I said, there's 18 chapters in this book that I wish I knew at the age of sort of 20 or thereabouts that that I could uh, just read this and think, wow, okay, there's all these fundamentals I need to put in place now, um, including my mission, vision and values and having the right purpose and finding the right people to go on this journey with me. Um, you know, just, just all, all critical learnings. But, um, you know, the book's become a, a bestseller already, which is which is fantastic. It's up for International Business Book of the Year at the UK Book Awards, which I was uh, amazed to find out. So uh, got my fingers crossed at the moment. <laughs> I will buy that book when we finish this interview. I because it, you know, I think, I think it's got uh, you know so many relevant lessons. Because one of the things about being an entrepreneur is that there's so much uncertainty, isn't there? Mm. Um, you know, you have the best plans, but you can never be certain. Everything's an experiment. You have to try it out, see if it works, try again. And mm. to a large extent, much of larger businesses have been thrown into this world as well, not as much as an entrepreneur, but there's just been so much change and uncertainty and even mm. the most sort of mature businesses. And having people that are passionate but are also flexible and mm, and absolutely. self-starting is is really important. What are the real lessons you've learned about knowing people that will fit into that mould when you interview them? Yeah, as people who, yeah, as you say, absolutely can be flexible and adaptive and understand that business, the business environment, the externalities, and I think this is a big lesson I've learned during COVID and also with the renewable energy business because government policy, subsidies, things change that are out of your control constantly. Um, and the business has to adapt and change. And that's just part of if you want to make change in the energy sector, for instance, you're going to need to go on that journey and take on all these things, these externalities that are out of your control. And um, uh, being able to adapt and be flexible is just part of being in a successful business. I mean, COVID changed so much for so many industries. We all saw the the winners and the losers out of COVID as the sector changed and how so many businesses had to pivot and change and operate differently mm. to, to either benefit. And this is where you need to have plans in the bottom drawer to, and you need to think about what things can go wrong and derail this business that are out of my control and how would I react to those things? Because mm -hmm. how you react and having a plan to react when these things potentially go wrong can often propel your business beyond your opposition very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be a real advantage just having that plan for externalities, but also talking through that plan with your people. So they're aware that these things can go wrong mm. and this is how we're going to change. So they're all part of the plan of change um, and all thinking through and really talking to your to your to all your people about and stakeholders about things that can go wrong that can derail the business and how you would react and getting everyone's input into that plan is, is critical because if they understand it and are part of the planning for it, then when it happens, they understand why it's happening and how we have to change. How do you make it safe for them to bring up concerns or problems about organisations? 
Yeah, that's always a tricky one. I, I would always have an open door policy where people can, I, I would like to present myself as very approachable, no matter how big the business was, that people could always come in and talk to me. Um, however, not everyone's e- easy or inclined to want to do that. So we would then make um, part of the quality management system a way for people to raise concerns anonymously or um, via a process or you know submitting their questions or queries or concerns. So we would always make sure there was a, a way to be able to raise issues of concerns and that they were dealt with um, either through the board or, or probably through a management committee of some sort beforehand because some things could be dealt with quickly, other things are more complex. Um, but just having a way through the management system that people could raise concerns and um, and whether, as I said, whether it's personally or directly or whether it's anonymously, um, but that, that's critical to have that. And it is, uh, you know, a very important element, isn't it? Because as the organisation gets bigger, you get further and further from, you know, the market and customers and and to have people that are the direct facing ones and receiving their input has become a a real critical element, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would always like to, you know, as big as our company got and, and, spread over multiple offers. It's easier when you're starting a company up and you're all in one room and you can all talk to each other and and you, you know very clearly where you all stand. But as you start getting separate offices and particularly interstate, to keep up that personal relationship and keep up that approachability and, and also keep talking to people about the mission, vision and values. I mean, it has got easier with video communications and other things, but um it's an important thing to keep that personal relationship up with everyone. And I think CEOs as the organization get bigger need to really make the effort to get out of their office and, and go all around the company all the time. You know, do that morning walk um, as far as you can go where you are or take time to go to the other offices or at least be on a video call where you can talk to and and be part of the journey that everyone in your organization is going on. Um yeah, it's it's not easy, but it's uh, but as your company gets bigger, and as you say, you, the CEO gets more, or the, or the leadership team gets more removed from the, the the front end. It's critical to get that feedback from the market and understand and interpret that market. Where 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 is the market taking us, and what do we need to? What's the you know if we're talking about new products or new services, how do we validate that? How do we test that? How do we make sure people are willing to pay for those things? What are services and products that we need to discontinue? How do we how do we keep all that information live and and analyze it. Yeah. What do you do for your own self-care, keeping up your energy? <laughs> it's hard. Um, I would always, and I always say this to my wife when she sees me getting, you know, a bit under the pump. <laughs> I, I I would always, if, if there's issues in my life and I and I get stressed or anxious about things, I've got to see a way through. And and I need to give myself. I mean, I, I talk about I use the analogy of throwing balls in the air. I like to throw a lot of balls in the air because then if I've got a lot of balls in the air, I know something's going to land mm. and there's going to be a way through. But if I sit there and just stress and stew over something and don't open up pathways to know that I can get through, um, then you know, the anxiety levels just raise because you, you're waiting for something to happen rather than actually making something happen you know so you know throwing a lot of things in the air making lots of inquiries making so doing things um that give yourself a pathway through uh it depends what the situation is i mean that that's something where 
if it's a financial situation or a business situation, you can do that. You can make phone calls and you can do pathways through. If it's a health situation or some other personal crisis, then it's harder. Um, I mean, I, I one of the organisations I founded was called the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, which I was the founding president in oh. South Australia. Um, oh. It's a global organisation out of North America. And um, so probably the largest organisation of commercial entrepreneurs that have larger businesses. You've got to be over a million US in revenue to be a part of the organization. But we had about 80 members here in South Australia. And mm. but the divorce rate, for instance, with entrepreneurs is about double the average community divorce rate. So you're looking at about 80% versus 40%, because by nature they're just very focused people. A lot are on the spectrum, I've got to say. Yeah, it's yeah, just, it's yeah. just, and, and quite often they just are so focused on their business. They work 24 hours a day mm. and don't take the blinkers off and are not looking after the people that support them, and things generally fall apart after a certain period of time. Um, and I've been through that myself, uh, so I know exactly what it's like, and, and I talk about that a lot when I do public talks about you know making sure you are aware of what's going on around you and, mm-hmm. um, and the people who enable you to do what you do, and, yeah. and you've got to make sure you're supporting them. So caring about people outside of yourself yeah. Um, is a very important thing for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I presented to that, that group in New South Wales and their partners um, about three months into COVID beginning. And, right. uh, and I know a few people in it and they speak very highly of the organisation and what yeah. they've learned out of it and how they get businesses to grow. So interesting hearing your, about your founding role in uh, in South Australia with that. Yeah. Well, the structure of EO, as you probably know, they, they break down into monthly meetings of eight to 10 people, which is called their forum groups, which is like an unofficial board of director where they share, they put a topic on the table, which which can be personal or business and and share their experiences in that. But I know within my forum, which I think I had eight people in my forum, six of us were going through divorces at the same time. You know, wow. it was just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So, but that, that sort of rate of divorce is common right throughout the organisation. So it's something that needs to be addressed and talked about. And I'm glad you talked to them because that's something they need to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, and it's not hard. It's not, sorry, it's not easy for young entrepreneurs who are so caught up in their businesses to actually take the blinkers off and look around and make sure that the people that they actually care about are being looked after. Yeah. Mm. When uh, you think about things like exercise and sleep, and what you eat. Are there any specific things that you look for? I think it's very age-dependent. Um, and you know, I'm nearly 60 and I'm finding at my age it's more about mobility and keeping active and keeping mentally active as well as physically active, but not overstressing myself, um, but just keeping keeping fit and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, finding time to look after yourself is is absolutely critical if you want to perform whether it's in business or whatever you're doing if you if you're not looking after yourself or making time to look after yourself it's going to make it that much harder to achieve the personal goals the stakeholder goals that you want to do so i you know for me personally i've got a, a an exercise bike that i i ride three times a week um 
Uh, I mean, it's great these days. I, I use the iFit platform. No, <laughs> don't mean to plug iFit, but there's many different types of platforms, but it connects to your bike. You can go riding anywhere in the world from your lounge room and uh, and have a really good good workout. Um, I also do push-ups and a few things just to sort of a combination of aerobic and some basic strength building, but that seems to be enough for me. I, I uh, you know, it, it helps me, but, you know, certainly at a younger age, you probably would be more active and, and going to the gym and doing things. I think as you get older, you probably don't want to go and show your body off to the gym, <laughs> 20 year olds, but um, uh, that's, uh, yeah. But looking after yourself physically, yeah, and emotionally is really important. What do you value highly in a friend? I think trust, um, whether it's personal or, or a business relationship, I think just that their word means something. Uh, I'm a bit old fashioned that I, even though you, know, you may have contracts and things in place, I like to look people in the eye and shake the hand. And, and when they say they, this is what they believe in, this is what they're going to do, um, that they are that and they do that. And so I think trust for me is the fundamental thing that I look for in relationships. Mm-hmm. What's been a really significant crisis that you've had to go through? I think... Personally, a marriage breakdown is really hard. I think you lose years of your life through a marriage breakdown, you know, both financially and emotionally, and particularly if you have children. Business-wise, the best example I can probably give, which is an externality example, was with Zen Energy, probably, you know, that company just went crazy for the first four or five years. And we went from zero to about $80 million revenue very, very quickly. Like we were the fastest growing company in Australia for two years in a row, the fourth fastest growing company in the country. Um, and then suddenly, so what was happening in the renewable industry sector as, as the industry was scaling, the cost of components were coming down quite dramatically. Mm. So the paybacks on these systems that when we started were probably – 12 to 15 years that you know only the early adopters would be taking um and and buying then it went to 10 years as soon as it got to 10 years we saw the industry start to move and mm-hmm. um, when it got to seven years it really started to take off now you're down to about a two-year payback but during that process as costs were coming down of course the government were looking at pulling back on rebates and feed-in tariffs and different things but every time they would make those changes and they would make them you know a block change, you know, once or twice a year, the general community would think, oh, I've, there's no rebates in solar anymore, so I'm not going to buy. And um, even though the payback was probably better than what they would have had six months earlier, you know, significantly. So we would go from days when we'd have 600 people queued down the street with their forms in their hand wanting to buy systems to the next six months of having no customers and um it was just a turbulent time in the industry that many or most i would say went bust through that period Mm. and we we navigated a way through but god it was tough um and a lot of lessons learned in in planning for these types of external events and how we were going to manage them how we're going to fund our way through them you know cash flow became critical and and uh, so lots of lessons learned through that experience. And I think that's why I, I focus a lot on externalities because it can really, the unexpected can change your business dramatically. Mm. And so 
and trying to prepare for those rapid changes, which may not even be expected. How do you do that? How do you make sure that, is it running scenarios and thinking about what could be some options that could happen? What's a threat to our business? Is it, is it like that? Or Yeah, it, it really is running scenarios. So thinking what government policy, for instance, could really affect our business? What supply chains, like we talk a lot about sovereign uh, manufacturing now, which who would have thought we would be going back to looking at manufacturing in Australia when we've mm. relied so heavily for 20 years now or more mm. on overseas imports. Um, however, we can't get stock from overseas. Logistics are just failing us terribly. So do we look at alternative local manufacturers? Should we be looking at that now longer term, having options? What advantages do we have? Obviously, quicker supply chain, maybe a higher cost, but we can service our customers, maybe better quality. Weighing up all those scenarios versus, okay, if supply came on from overseas again, what advantage have we now created for ourselves in Australia? Should we have a dual supply chain? Yeah, so going through all those scenarios, but making sure those options are there, learning from things that have happened, but also looking at what else could go wrong. You know, so supply chain is one thing. Government policy is another big thing. You see policy changing subsidies if there's subsidies in your industry that's a real danger because you learn to build a business around the subsidies as you know and suddenly then they're, they're never going to be there forever usually they're introduced to start an industry to scale like we're seeing that now we probably will see that with the hydrogen sector so we've, we're going through solar we've been we're going we've been through solar we've been through wind we've probably been through home batteries to a degree those industries have scaled to the point where the product makes Good sense to buy those products. The next thing that will probably be subsidised for a period of time will be hydrogen. So mm. building hydrogen plants, um, which will most likely be a replacement fuel for diesel. So we can run trucks and buses and vessels and planes and things on an alternate fuel mm. that's um, that has the energy density three times the energy density than diesel, but um, but zero emissions. So that'll be the next sector. So how do you plan for that, knowing that? incentives will last for a period of time and then and then change so yeah it's not they're not easy to plan for things that you don't know are going to happen but mm. you just got to look at what can impact my business yeah. and um how would i change it if it if it did mm. it's been an absolute uh, pleasure catching up today richard and uh, i'm sure our listeners have uh, been very inspired about your entrepreneurial insights and you know i think uh, knowing that they can go out and buy your book the essential entrepreneur i think is a great lesson <laughs> and, I, and i'm certainly uh, going to be doing that there's one question that i always ask at the end and and that yeah. is knowing what you know now what advice would you give to your 18 year old self working in that uh, meat processing plant <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be giving them a copy of my book. <laughs> um, I'd say everything I've learned the last 40 years is here. Just read this. Um, uh, look, I, I, that's why I wrote the thing, because I I am passionate about entrepreneurship. But I've spent the last two years as the entrepreneur in residence at the University of South Australia. So through that time, I've mentored hundreds of companies, and they're all going through the same thing. The, the main thing I'd probably give advice to these young entrepreneurs is validating your business model. Make before you go into business, and and there is a, a, an age, a generational shift in the way that we do that. Um, you know, the younger university age people these days 
and it's just the way they've been brought up now with electronics, but very reluctant to pick up a phone and talk to people. Mm. And when you've got to validate a business model, you need to ensure there's a customer willing to pay the price for your product or service. But when you're going through that evolution of the product development and you've got an idea and you create a test product or a pilot of some sort, you need to be able to test it on a group of potential customers. You might start off with family and friends that you're comfortable with and get their input, but then at some point you're going to need to take it to a broader group of potential customers. But you've got to be able to ask open-ended questions Mm. and get answers. So because if you just email out a survey, you'll get yes, no type answers. You won't get these open-ended answers to say, yes, I'd buy that if it was a different color. Yes, I would buy that if it was $10 cheaper. But I like what it can do, but can it do this, this, and this? You know, those sorts of things. You need to be able to answer those questions or hear those answers and then from those answers, ask more questions and keep going through that design evolution to the point where you get a product market fit that you know this product when you launch it at this price is going to sell and you've got commitment from the focus group that yes this is this is a good product and it and it fits my needs and yes I would buy it so i think the best advice i could give to my 18 year old self or 20 year old self is is how to do that how to validate get on the phone talk to customers ensure that there's an acceptance for this product or service and then and then sit down and go through the mechanics of the business planning but you know you've got the most clarity of what you're going to do next year the the one year plan but also have a three-year plan of, mm. of what you want to achieve, your mission, vision, and values, what's the journey you're on, making sure the people that join you are aligned with you on that journey and everyone's passionate about changing a sector or changing the industry. I think they're the they're the fundamental, most important lessons I could probably pass on. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Richard. Thank you for sharing your insight and wisdom and hard knocks along the way. (laughs) Pleasure, Graham. Thanks for being part of The Caring CEO. No, pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.